This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Personhood describes the relations between them and the order of Father, Son, and Spirit. Why does God act from the Father through the Son by the Spirit? Why by the Spirit through the Son do we come back uh, to the Father? Because that's really who God is. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host James Dalzell. James, how are you today? Doing well. Looking forward to a uh, great discussion on the Trinity with our guest. Yeah, one of the joys of this program is we get to interview friends. And sometimes it's those are friends that we don't see very often. But in this case, it's a friend that I get to see uh, regularly because he's just down the hall from me. Ryan McGraw is the Morton H. Smith Professor of Systematic Theology here at Greenville Seminary. He's pastored uh, in the OPC. He's, he's ordained in the OPC. He also pastored in the PCA. And he's written a number of books. Many of our listeners will be familiar with with a number of things he's written. But the, the book that we have him on to discuss today is called A Mystery Revealed. And the subtitle is 31 Meditations on the Trinity. So, Ryan, thanks for joining us today to talk about this. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Ryan, I wanted to start by asking just a little bit about the genesis of this book. Um, what was it that provoked you to, to write it? It's kind of an unusual way to get at the doctrine of the Trinity, which can be very difficult for, for many, many uh, people to articulate clearly. And so uh, that, that might be a good jumping off point. What, what was it that uh, provoked you to, to write this book in this way? Well, throughout his Christian history, the doctrine of the Trinity and the person and work of Christ have really been central to the gospel. And yet in our modern times, I think we understand why Jesus might be central to the gospel, but is the doctrine of the Trinity actually relevant at all to the Christian life? And uh, what I've really sought to do and what I'm most excited about with this book is I'm trying to bridge a gap between what often becomes a very academic, high-level discussion about the Trinity to reaching the average Christian and getting them excited about understanding the gospel in terms of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, even in something as basic as God needs to be our Father, Jesus, our Savior, and the Spirit dwell in our hearts. And one big thing that this book does is it tries to show people patterns of thinking in scripture in terms of the divine persons. So my biggest hope with this is that as people read the book and see the meditations, they'll see things that they won't be able to unsee afterwards. And really, hopefully this will transform their Bible reading, their devotion, their worship. You know, when you mentioned that about the gospel, it, it really is striking. Sometimes uh, you'll see someone come before uh, the church in a membership class, and they'll be asked to explain the gospel. And maybe they won't mention Jesus, and that they'll, they'll always get called out for that. Well, where was where was Jesus in that? But but it's often the case. In fact, probably more often than not the case that you can have people in those same kind of situations who are asked to articulate the gospel, and they they'll never talk about the fact that God is triune father son and holy spirit so mm -hmm. I, I think you're you put your finger on something that certainly is uh prevalent uh just just in terms of its absence in our in our understanding of even the most basic christian truths yeah absolutely 
Ryan, you begin the book with a Trinitarian grammar, and it really is a sort of a, a nice primer on how to speak rightly about the Trinity. Uh, and I think it's very valuable because speaking wrongly about the Trinity uh, is almost matter of course these days. So I'm, I'm grateful for that sort of mapping out how Trinity talk uh, should work in an orthodox fashion. Uh, from from it, one thing you say in there, I think it's in the second chapter uh, that you that you deal with this it, or uh, part of chapter one is with regard to the work of the Trinity um, in terms of their work in the world. I think sometimes part of the problem of what's called social Trinitarianism arises from the fact that we perceive the persons to be actively doing different things such that we almost conceive of them as three powers, which our confession says they aren't, or three minds, which our confession says they aren't. And so how are we supposed to understand just in terms of our knowledge of God through his works in the world, how do we understand the unity of the persons in that? What kind of unity is this? One, one phrase I like to use often just because it's easy and memorable is that God does what he does because he is who he is. And I think what that indicates is really we see God and see who God is through what God does. So a lot of times Christians recognize some of these things intuitively before they have the grammar. So, for example, we know that when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, we say our Father in heaven. When we pray to our Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ and we ask for the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to work in the hearts of other people. And a lot of times, if we just pray in a biblical fashion, uh, we are praying as good Trinitarians, though we may not be self-conscious. So like uh, a child, for example, then learning English grammar and learning how to communicate better and speak well, that's really what I'm getting at here. Um, some of the questions you asked about social Trinitarianism and, and multiple wills or minds in God uh, really gets into the thorny question of what's a person. And uh, I don't want to get into that in depth right now because it's so complex. But basically, uh, one thing I will say is I think often when we talk about personhood, we make a lot of assumptions. So I did a conference recently. Somebody asked the perennial question. Um, well, how do we have persons and distinction in God without three wills or three people or, or something like that? And I actually turned it around to the audience and said, how do you define person? And I get this stunned silence. And then an hour and a half later, they were still trying to answer the question of what a person is. And it actually turns out when we deal with the Trinity what we're trying to deal with is uh, the, the divine being, the divine will is really what the Father, Son, and Spirit hold in common. But personhood describes the relations between them and the order of Father, Son, and Spirit. Why does God act from the Father through the Son by the Spirit? Why by the Spirit through the Son do we come back uh, to the Father? Because that's really who God is. And you begin to realize if I say the Son is a person, because from eternity, he's God of the Father. The Spirit's a person, because from eternity, he's from God the Father and the Son. That's stable. It may be hard for me to wrap my mind around, but what about you and what about me? We're born as infants. We live through the world. Maybe we're converted to Christ. 
our lives change, we go through old age and ultimately resurrection. How do we define stable personhood for us? And I think one thing that's uh, maybe shocking to people sometimes is it's easier to deal with terms like personhood for the Trinity because we're dealing with something permanent, eternal, stable, and it's a bit harder for us. Uh, so whatever difficulties we have with the Trinity, we're really having a, a uh, blessed privilege of, as it were, peering into the life of God and really knowing him better than we can describe him in many ways. It's a really good answer. And I, I appreciate that your book and, and, and just for, so, so listeners know, uh, the book doesn't avoid the question of personhood, uh, because you do dive into it in different chapters of the book and you say it's a thorny issue, but I think you, you, you walk uh, helpfully through it with readers. Your, your book, 31 chapters, uh, different ways of coming at and contemplating the Trinity. And obviously, we're not going to cover all of those in detail in a short talk like this, but maybe just a couple uh, samplings out of it uh, that we could discuss. One is with regard to the way Christ is present with us now. Uh, through his spirit. He says that he must go away, John 14, that he's going to send a comforter, uh, but that somehow through the spirit, Christ is with us. Uh, can you help us understand how it is through the spirit uh, that Christ is with us now? I think one thing that's helpful here uh, in older Trinitarian theology that uh, many people have forgotten is using mission language with respect to God and uh, when we think of mission, we think of what we should do as the church and how we should evangelize the world. When we use mission with respect to God, what we mean is, in a very literal sense, um, mission means sent. So when we talk about missions with the Trinity, we should understand mission in a very literal sense, meaning sent. Um, so in other words... Uh, when God acts, Old Testament or New, it's from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. But when we talk about missions, what we mean is the Son is sent to do a particular task in time, starting at His incarnation. The Spirit is sent from the Son uh, in order to fulfill His mission in the world. And basically, to put it simply, um, in John 5, if I can hover around two texts to make this easier, uh, John 5, the son has all that he has from the father, including life in itself. And uh, the son, therefore, uh, goes forth, fulfills the mission given to him by the father. That includes things like becoming man, living an obedient life, suffering and dying for us, uh, rising from the dead, ascending up into heaven, uh, and all that Jesus is, all that Jesus did is relevant for us and for our salvation. Uh, but as John Calvin put it well, what good is all of that? And what good is, is Christ's finished work if he's outside of us, if he's over there and I'm over here? And the mission of the Spirit then comes in. And it's not as though uh, the Spirit was was inactive prior to Pentecost when Christ poured him out on the church but Jesus does say in Acts 2.33 uh, that he's poured out the spirit whom he's received from the Father. And the spirit goes out and according, I said two texts, that's a third. But basically the second one we'll, I have we'll in allow mind it. is the John 16. Uh, John 16, the spirit's mission is to glorify Christ. 
And all that he has is from Christ, just as all that Christ has is from the Father. And I have in mind verses 8 through 15. Uh, the Spirit's mission is to glorify Christ. How does he achieve it? Through the Word. Um, why does he do it? Because this is who he is in relation to the Son and the Father from eternity. So the missions tell us something about what God is like uh, in eternity. But at the same time, uh, what we see is the, the Father saving us by sending his Son, the Son fulfilling all the work set before him, and then the Spirit, as it were, driving it home. So this is the reason, in other words, when you read through the book and you start seeing one scripture text at a time, you start seeing a pattern uh, that the Father chose us in Christ, the Son redeemed us by his blood, the Spirit seals redemption, uh, so that by the Spirit, through the Son, we come to the Father. Uh, this whole idea of missions there is really uh, describing what the Son and the Spirit particularly do to bring us back to the Father. Maybe we could tap that into prayer because you deal with this also in your book, uh, another chapter. How does how does that the missions of the Son and Spirit? How does that impinge on our prayer life and shape our prayer life? Well, as uh, Fred Sanders put it very well in in a recent book on the Holy Spirit, uh, when we think about the Father, Son, and Spirit, we should think about uh, from, through, and in. So uh, why, for example, in our prayers, do we address God as our Father? On the one hand, because that's the highest privilege we have, uh, calling God our Father, being joint heirs with Christ, having an everlasting inheritance through his blood uh, with his spirit as pledge. Uh, but also the Father as the first person represents the majesty of the whole trinity. And why then, uh, through the Son, do we come to the Father? Because whether it's the creation of the world, uh, the upholding of all things by the word of his power, or redeeming us, the Father always works through his Son as the persons work inseparably. They work in an ordered way and an appropriate way that reflects who they actually are in relation to each other. Um, and then why the Spirit? Why is everything in the Spirit? Because the Spirit brings us into communion with God and with the saints. So whether we're self-conscious about all those things or not, um, we're actually depending upon and worshiping all three persons when we pray to the Father in Jesus' name, by and for the Holy Spirit. So in one way, uh, what I'm really doing in the book is saying in, in some ways, you already know this intuitively. You already practice these things because you read your Bible. Um, but why is it so? Why is it here? How do we get a, a deeper grasp of our God and and marvel at his glory and beauty more fully as we, we understand what's going on behind this? As a final thought, uh, you conclude your book with an exhortation to keep the Trinitarian faith. And I wonder if you could close us out uh, in this small uh, discussion with a couple of those counsels that you give. How can we keep the Trinitarian faith beside, you know, rereading Confession Chapter 2, Article 3? Uh, how do we actively daily keep, and maybe some of that just kind of dovetails in with what you're saying about prayer, but how do we keep the Trinitarian faith? There's a bunch of different ways that that we could do this, but I think 
given the weight of the book, a, few, a couple of things really do stand out. And that chapter itself um, really revolves around a Trinitarian text in Jude uh, that's dealing with perseverance. But I think two big things that, that stand out to me are really um, our thinking and our devotion. So, in other words, um, how do you think? In many ways, uh, what this book is trying to do is teach us what to look for in Scripture, to think about salvation, to think about doctrine, to think about our fellowship with God and others, not just in terms of, of getting truths right, but in terms of depending on uh, all three persons in the Trinity so what we're really doing is uh, we're, we're not just presenting doctrines in a cold, intellectual way, but as things revealed by God, the triune God, and reflecting God's glory. I think the, the best, um, whether you call it comment or compliment I've ever had after preaching on the Trinity, is, uh, is a young man coming up to me and saying, I can't wait to go reread my Bible. Uh, in other words, I'm going to see new things and new patterns. And what this book does is really uh, moves in, in terms of the historical order of the Bible, Old Testament to New, to try to train you in thinking in new patterns. Uh, the devotional side of this, though, is really uh, built in, on the first, how we think, and and weaves into it integrally. And what I'm really getting at is, that we are are not just concerned with being right and holding the right truth and being able to argue with someone who disagrees with us. Uh, we are in in Augustine like fashion uh, seeking God in everything. So, in other words, uh, I want to see God. I want to know God. I want to worship God. I want to make Him known as fully as possible in everything I believe, in everything I study in Scripture. And, and if I don't and I can't, then I count it loss and I count it valueless. And so what I'm getting at is we need to train uh, the way we think to hold fast to Trinitarian doctrine. But the purpose of thinking that way is to increase in devotion and worship. So that's really the, the end game, so to speak, of, of what I'm getting at here. Ryan, we, this is a conversation that we could continue having, I think, for a long time. It's really um, uh, fruitful and helpful. We appreciate your giving giving us a few minutes here and uh, and really commend this book to our listeners, A Mystery Revealed, 31 Meditations on the Trinity. Ryan, thanks, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, brothers. Good to be with you. Well, James, one of the things that I uh, particularly appreciate about this this volume, and it's a small little book. I, I say volume, but it, it's a small book. But um, it, it, it's, it touches on something that I see firsthand here in uh, Ryan's work, which is he's, he's really seeking to, to get students, but in this case, readers, to think in terms of how God has revealed himself in Scripture and then to to, to, to use that in a sense as a kind of lens through which they view um, their Christian lives and, and their Bibles in particular. And that theme kept coming up over and over again. You know, I, I want 
people to, to, to start seeing this in the Bible. And I think it is a really profound way of, of engaging Trinitarian doctrine. It's not um, just that we need to do that from the sort of abstractions from the text, which are vitally important, but, but he's sort of embedding it and trying to show how it's woven through everything. It's, 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 uh, it's not just a conclusion. It's a, it's an assumption of the text. This, and I think the book, it's not just written for seminarians, though I think they would benefit greatly from it. Um, it's, it's really written to be read through in a month where you take yeah. a day of the month and anywhere from five to seven pages of, of theologically rich, biblically based devotional literature. Ryan adds a few questions at the end of each little chapter, just to kind of stir your contemplation um, and your meditation as well. He also begins each chapter with a prayer uh, that he's composed just to kind of set the frame of mind. And this really could be used as, and should be used as, as devotional literature to to foster real trinitarian piety um as we as we look at the triune god father son holy spirit revealed variously uh throughout the pages of scripture uh and so i i would warmly recommend it to our readers ryan is is a theologically sound and sure guide uh but also has uh, a real ability to communicate rich and profound truths uh, plainly and persuasively. So warmly recommend this volume. We do warmly recommend it. And for those of you who might be interested in trying to uh, win one of the few copies that we've been given by our friends at Reformation Heritage Books, you can do that by going to the Theology on the Go page, uh, either on placefortruth.org or theologyonthego.org. There's a place for you to enter your information. And we do have a few of those to give away. Uh, but if regardless, we'd, we'd urge you to, to go out and, and purchase. It's about 250 pages, again, very accessible book. And I think it could be a transformational book in many ways for, for some of our listeners. So we, we'd encourage you to do that. We also want to thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. Uh, many of you have the ability to give to the work of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, we, we rely on that. And so if you go to alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org, there's a donate button on each of those web pages. It makes it very easy to make a donation and any donation is really appreciated. If you know someone who would benefit from this podcast, pass it along, rate and review wherever you download it. That actually really helps us get the word out. So we'd appreciate if you take a minute to do that. And as always, from James and myself and the whole crew at the Alliance, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. 